Welcome to Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age, the show designed to help make middle age your prime time of life by defying the notion that once you reach 40, 50, or even 60 years old, your crowning achievements are all behind you. Regardless of whether you're just approaching 40 or are firmly entrenched in your middle years, it's time to launch your very own personal journey toward a joyful and purpose-filled second half of life. Each week, host Roy Richards, an expert on midlife renewal and author of A Midlife Challenge, Wake Up, will discuss the challenges common to middle age and help guide you to a brighter tomorrow. Now, here's Roy. Well, hello and welcome to this week's edition of Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age. Hey, do you ever wonder why some bosses, executives, and leaders are far more effective than others? Why some folks have fulfilling marriages and are highly successful at parenting while others are not, why some of us are happy in our relationships, our careers, and with life in general, while others, despite almost identical circumstances, are not, well, my guest, leadership training expert Darren Gold, says like a computer, your degree of success in life and your outlook on today and tomorrow is due to your internal program, which is decades in the making. You see, from the moment you and I were born, we began to accumulate sets of beliefs, values, and rules to help us make sense of the world around us, and every day new rules are stacked on top of the old ones. Think of this stack of rules as the computer program that runs your life. But here's some good news. Darren Gold contends that you are not locked in by genetics or prior experience into your current circumstances, and he's here to explain how you and I can erase and rewrite our internal programming. In effect, you and I can rewrite our own code for a more favorable outcome. And uh, Darren Gold has written a comprehensive new book on the subject that we'll preview today. And before I introduce Darren, here are his qualifications. He's managing partner of the Trium Group, where he advises and coaches CEOs and leadership teams and many of the world's most innovative companies, including Roach, Dropback, or Dropbox, Cisco, eBay, and Warner Brothers, just to name a few. And uh, he's a former CEO of two educational companies, Held College and Delta Career Education Corp. And he's a partner in two San Francisco-based private equity firms. And early in, earlier in his career, he worked as an engagement manager for the esteemed management consulting firm McKinsey & Company as an, an attorney for Iroh and Manila. And his brand-new 2019 book is titled Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. And hello, Donald Gold. We are indeed honored to have you here with us today. Roy, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you very much. In your book, you advise that the formerly conventional wisdom that from our very first breath, our genes make us who we are and guide our behavior, that this is a myth. If so, what in fact does guide our behavior? Yeah, it is. It's, a, it's a, one of many myths that I try to take on and, and challenge and, and hopefully shatter for the reader in the book. But uh, this myth that we're sort of free-wired uh, to be who we're going to be is uh, is one that uh, I find uh, not to be the case in my work. And the analogy that you've already referenced is what really drives our behavior, sort of the fundamental driver of human behavior, 
are the beliefs, values, and rules that we construct. And that's really important that we construct because we make those beliefs, values, and rules up in response to our environment and the experiences that we have, particularly early on in our lives. And so the main assertion of the book is that we're um, oftentimes finding ourselves in middle age, and I mentioned this in the book, I was 40 years old realizing that I was being run by a program written by a seven-year-old boy. And uh, that realization for me personally, and I know for many others that I've had the privilege of working with, can be a very powerful one because it suggests that we um, have the ability to rewrite the rules that govern us and do it consciously and intentionally. And that's what leads to real effectiveness. Yeah, if we may, I'd like to begin with the basics. Please give us your definitions for the words program and code as they apply to human behavior. I know right in the front of your book you have those definitions. Yeah, I I define program as a set of subconscious, safety-based beliefs, values, and rules that automatically drive your behavior and limit your results. And then I contrast that with with a code, uh, which is a consciously chosen set of beliefs, values, and rules that is purposefully designed to serve you and produce extraordinary results. Yeah, there's a tremendous difference between those two, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, one is sort of uh, default and automatic and sort of safety-based, which yeah. can, you know, which, which can be fine, yeah. but it's not going to necessarily, and in most cases, lead to the kind of outcomes that most people and certainly your listeners, I'm sure, uh, want in life. Yeah, well, most experts tell us that a major portion of our subconscious is programmed, and as you put it, uh, when you're a small boy during the first few years of our life as an infant and small child. In your book, you reveal that you had a very unfortunate childhood, dysfunctional family on the edge of poverty, divorced, uneducated parents, mother and alcoholic who abandoned you to your father, uh, father uh, in and out of jail, and you lived in three different countries and 12 different homes by age 12. What a disruptive childhood. At what point in life did you come to realize that your childhood did not predestine a bleak future and that you could take charge and rewrite your own code? And what were the circumstances surrounding that conversion? Yeah, in many ways it was sort of a gradual realization. And I think, um, you know, one of the powerful things, I say the human superpower is the ability to choose the meaning that you give to your circumstances. Now, one person could say, hey, that was a really disruptive and unfortunate childhood. Another person could say, what an incredible childhood because it taught me the importance of education and how to overcome adversity. And so we have a choice. And in many respects, I was subconsciously making the latter choice, like viewing it as as something that um, uh, that could strengthen me. But yeah, it really the jar was half full and not half empty, in other words. <laughs> yeah, and that is a choice, right? I mean, and, and uh, there's no better I, – I have a quote from Viktor Frankl in the book uh, and from Man's Search for Meaning, man who survived the most unimaginable circumstances in a Nazi death camp, chose to believe that his circumstances were, were good and hopeful. Uh, and this, this, this power of choice is a really under – appreciated and underused uh, kind of superpower that we have. So really, I I sort of subconsciously made that choice early, but it really, when I was conscious of it, really didn't happen until I was almost 40 years old. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. that's just when uh, we're ready to wake up to life and we're <laughs> 40. It sure is. <laughs> well, tell us, what is the only difference between the average person and the fortunate individual leading an extraordinary life, and what is the most fundamental choice 
you can make in your life. Yeah, well, I think the uh, the difference is awareness, right? That you're um, this this just this notion that hold on, wait a second, I'm being run by a set of beliefs, rules, and values, and worldviews, and mental models, and assumptions that I made up, and I didn't even know I made them up. And that very realization can create an opening for for something extraordinary. So the the key difference is just to be aware of it, and then it's okay. What parts of that program? do I want to reconstruct? And the book suggests there are 10 key ones. And um, you can almost start anywhere. uh, And there are kind of a couple critical ones that I would probably highlight as if you really want to catalyze a shift from, you know, the run of the mill to the extraordinary, it would be uh, a couple of these that I can talk about. Yeah. Why don't you run through those 10 real quickly, just the title of them, so so that uh, we can have some references to... uh what those sure. 10 most important beliefs are. Yeah, and they're the titles of each chapter, but I'll just go through them in one yeah. order. Uh, first is, I am the author of my life. Uh, the second is, I act, I don't react. The third is, I play to win. The fourth is, I am 100% responsible for my life. Fifth is, I forgive unconditionally. Six is, I seek to understand. Seven is, I own my identity. Eight is, I never stop learning and growing Nine is I am my word, and the last is I live on purpose. Oh, yeah, those are all great. And if we may, I'd like to briefly go over a few of these ten essential beliefs one by one. The essential declaration, number one, I am the author of my life. For most of us, what is the primary problem that prevents you from taking charge and authoring your own life, and how do you overcome it? Yeah, well, it's really a chapter about awareness. Right? And it goes back to what I just said, which is, um, and I tell the story, you know, that David Foster Wallace told in a commencement street uh, a speech um, about the, the two fish that are swimming along, and they pass by an older fish, and the older fish says, hey, boys, how's the water? And they swim past them, and they look to each other, and they say, what the hell is water? And it's a great metaphor for us uh, as human beings, because we do kind of metaphorically swim through life unaware of the water. And so once you become aware of the water, which is really your conditioning, your these values, beliefs, rules, this computer program that's running your life, you can now reconstruct it. That's what I mean by being the author of my life. I can now say when I confront a certain situation, am I automatically driven driven to interpret that situation and act in a certain way? Yeah. Or do I get to choose? And that that's the distinction in this chapter, I'm the author of my life. And that's yeah. why I started it with that, because it's foundational. Yeah, to accomplish the second essential rule of mastering your code, I act, I don't react. What are the two fundamental myths about human behavior you need to change and challenge and shatter? (laughs) Yeah, well, the the, the first is that we're somehow emotionally hardwired. You know, you you, you hear that language a lot, hardwiring, which has a connotation of being unchangeable, right? And that, that somehow emotions in particular are hardwired, like, if I get angry, and I use the example of somebody honking rudely at me, right, that, that's just the way the world is, and that's the way we as human beings are, are wired. And I, I confront that head on, and there's a lot of research now that's suggesting that our emotions aren't hardwired, that they're constructed just like anything else. Uh, but they're, they're constructed so early on, it's the way everybody believes that they cease to see, be seen as something separate than, than reality. And, and I take that myth on and say, you know what? Even emotions, even core emotions 
are made up and constructed and can be reconstructed. Um, so that that's sort of uh, you know one of the the, the really um, important kind of myths that I would uh, that I would uh, suggest needs to be challenged. Yeah. And then the other is um, you know the view that what you perceive through your senses dictates what you feel. Yeah. And you know really that's that's a really interesting one because um, a lot of times it's what the body actually it's what was happening in the body not what's happening outside of you. Yeah, you point really out actually the other yeah. way around. It's, it's our body that uh, determines what we sense and and feel. And you can you can just you can understand that with your own examples, right? With your own experience. So if you wake up tired and hungry, are you more likely to have high-quality conversations with your family or low-quality conversations with your family. The family's the same, right? Nothing has yeah. changed in your environment. What's happened in your body, your body is now looking for, right, um, environmental cues when it's deprived, sleep-deprived, or hungry. And so what's happening in your body has a lot to do with how you interpret your environment. And so if you understand that and you begin to master your body, the whole world shows up differently. Your ability to interpret it in different ways can can change. Yeah, I like so how I, you propose yeah. four steps we should take to uh, master our emotions. What are those four? Yeah. And you point um, out the you, first one is awareness, which is obviously so crucial in everything that we be aware of. <laughs> yeah, you've got to be aware that you have beliefs, right? So I would say, you know, take the car honking example, right? This belief yeah. that if someone honks at me, they were intentionally being rude to me. And that that matters. That's a belief. Okay, so I've got yeah. step number one is just to to really um, be aware of it. Um, and, and then step two is to really get specific. Like, what is the part of the program that underlines my behavior, right? Yeah. And, and, na- and name it specifically. Step three is um, to really examine it. Sit there. Not just take it for granted. Say, really? Is that true? Yeah. Is it true that anytime somebody honks at me, they're intentionally being rude at me and that that's something that I should be angry about? And once you start to sit with beliefs, you start to get some insight into, wait a second, you know, there's really, this is the fourth step, there may be some other reasons why. Maybe it wasn't even the person honking, maybe somebody else. Maybe they unintentionally tapped their horn. Maybe they held it a little longer than they thought that you would. And I I asked myself, I've I've done that before. I just wanted to gently tap and I've accidentally... Tapped it longer, and somebody gets really mad, and I had no intention of being rude, right? I just and wanted maybe to you're them. driving so, Merit at a horn. <laughs> maybe it did, right? Maybe they're yeah. in a bad mood because they have some calamity happening in their life. And, yeah, and so like there's a whole meeting. host of yeah ways to interpret that that happens when you go through this careful examination of what's driving you. And that's what it means to be you know, really a master of your emotions, not a prisoner of them. Well, and your uh, third essential belief is play to win, and to do so, you tell us we must become a master of our past. What do you mean by that, and what benefit do you gain from examining past decisions that were made based upon your prior automatic survival strategies? Yeah, so there is um, this notion that we are a function of our past, and that's very much true. It's sort of part of the the basis of the book, and at the same time, I take a strong stand that we are are not um, captive to our pasts, right? So in order to really live an extraordinary life and live life to its fullest, um, you have to understand your past. You have to understand what's driving you, right? And and understand that most of your past and your past programming was designed for you to play not to lose, to keep you safe. 
And this distinction between playing not to lose and playing to win, um, there's a great book, Play to Win, Larry Wilson uh, wrote, and I recommend it to anybody, is a really important one. So understanding your past is one thing. Being trapped by it and a prisoner of it is another. And so my recommendation in the book is to really see where in your past have you constructed a program, and I call them survival strategies, that are designed to keep you safe. And how are those survival strategies, how do they serve you? Because they always do. But where are they limiting your effectiveness going forward? Yeah, you and the understanding three survival the strategies, belonging, distancing, and controlling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we all have some combination of them, right? The belonging yeah. ones are the need to be liked and to be included. Boy, do I have, you know, had those from my childhood. Yeah. Um, the distancing ones are like to be smart, to be right, you know, to be a little above everyone else. Yeah. And then controlling is like the need to win, to be in control. And, and I say we all have some combination of the three, but we usually have one that's particularly dominant, primary. And it's that primary survival strategy. For me, the one I share in the book was the need to be liked, which yeah. is really a belonging strategy and where it came yeah. from and understanding how it really served me but where it was holding me back. And with, with awareness of it, how I could really expand my actions and be more effective. Yeah, well, I love your fourth role of mastering your code. I am 100% responsible for my life and from my own personal experience, and I'm sure my listeners will agree, I find there's absolutely nothing to be gained from blaming others or unavoidable circumstances for an unfavorable personal situation. That's really just an excuse for uh, doing nothing and suffering for the rest of your life. And to recover from an unfavorable situation where is the change needed too much to force or convince others to change or to accomplish change within yourself? And does it make sense to take responsibility for your own change, but only if that change is conditional upon others making reciprocal change? Yeah, very well said and well put. It's a, it's a maybe the most fundamental shift in beliefs that you can undertake um, if you want to be effective and lead an extraordinary life. And it is such a powerful default belief that we hold. This yeah. is what I call victim mindset, right? The, yeah. the, the seductive desire and need to blame others and externalize responsibility. And it's in all of us. It's really part of our conditioning. But I suggest if you want to truly lead an extraordinary life, taking the stand that I'm 100% responsible for my life is very powerful. And the distinction I want to give your listeners is that this isn't an assertion of truth necessarily because there are lots of times when we're not 100% responsible or where somebody did something. But the question is blaming them versus taking 100% responsibility. Which of those better serves you? And You I, don't and have I to blame that, yourself in every instance. It's really uh, just saying I have the ability to control what my emotions going forward and to do something about this. Exactly. And a lot of people fall into the trap of self-blame, and it's not about blaming yourself. Responsibility is often equated with blame, and that's the myth that often people have. This is about saying there's always something I can do to affect my situation, and that is a powerful stand to take in life and a hard one uh, to really embrace given the kind of strong conditioning that we've all had. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we don't have uh, time to go through rules 5 through 10, but this doesn't mean they're any less essential. In the time remaining, though, I'd like to talk a bit about your new book, Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. In Chapter 7, Mastering Your Identity, you tell us that you had uh, 
in your subconscious, I am not an author. How are you able to overcome that subconscious limitation to produce the remarkable book that you've written? (laughs) Oh, thank you. And it was one of my favorite chapters because it is such a powerful um, distinction, right? This idea that one of the greatest drivers of human behavior is the need to be consistent with one's identity. And I I discovered... um, that everybody has, well, so everyone has an identity. It resides in the subconscious mind, and we act out of that identity. So if you want to take extraordinary actions, you better have an extraordinary identity. And in my process of uh, writing a book, deciding to write and commit to writing a book, I discovered, I said, wait a second, I'm holding this subconscious belief, right, this part of my identity that I'm not an author. And people that aren't authors will talk a lot about writing books, but they'll never write one. Yeah. So I literally had to go through the process of consciously reconstructing that belief and saying, no way, I am an author. Not I will be an author, but I am an author. Yeah. And I believed it with so much certainty that I knew that the book would just naturally flow out of that identity, and it did. Yeah, that's great. Well, is your book uh, written primarily for leaders in business or other organizations, or can the rest of us also benefit? Uh, it's really written for everyone. I got some advice, really good advice uh, from you know my publisher and others that know a lot more than I do about writing books that write for a very narrow slice uh, of the population. And I just, I just couldn't do that. I had a book that I really felt um, could be read by everyone. Uh, I obviously have a background in working with business leaders, and this yeah. is definitely a book for business leaders to read. But the inspiration for writing the book was a letter to my son who was going to college. So uh, it really spans the range of, of people that are just entering adulthood to uh, those that are you know, well into adulthood um, because we're all human beings. We all uh, suffer from and have an, uh, and similar opportunities. And so age, whatever, uh, all of yeah. us are leaders and to some extent. If we have children who are leaders of our, in our family, we need to be yep. effective leaders there in, in relationships, in our church, our community, whatever. And you don't have to have a formal designation as CEO to help lead opinion in the right direction. So, I love I mean. that you said that. It's it's something I do. I say the same thing, and I often say even, you know, you're always the CEO of yourself as well. And yeah. that may be the most important leadership responsibility you have, this idea that, you know, and I start the book with a quote from Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher who said, no man is free who is not master of himself. Yeah. And in, in essence, this book is about self-leadership, you know, mastery of your own mind, your own body, your own being. And, um, and to your point, it doesn't, you don't need to be a formal leader because you for sure are leading yourself. Well, where's be. the best place for our listeners to go to preview and purchase your book, Master Your Code? Yeah, it's available uh, on Amazon, uh, Master Your Code, and uh, in every format, hardcover, paperback, uh, Kindle, and audiobook. I narrate the audiobook. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then I also have a uh, an author website um, that will tell you a little bit more about me, the book, and my firm, The Trium Group, and that's um, www.darren, D-A-R-R-E-N-J-G-O-L-D, darrenjgold.com. Yeah, everyone knows how to spell, spell gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We all wish we had some. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> well, in conclusion, Jaron J. Gold's book has received a number of very positive reviews, and here's just one of them. Some books show you the ceiling and how to break through it, 
This book shows you that there is no ceiling, and that's from Tim Chen, CEO of a strange named company, Nerd Wallet. <laughs> but I love yeah, that. Great, co- great company. And I'd like to add my humble endorsement. Darren's book is highly convincing. Your future is not locked in by your genetics nor by negative thoughts and limitations implanted in your subconscious. Maybe long ago, perhaps as a small child, you can become aware of what, if anything, is holding you back, and you can rewrite your code. But in closing, I'd like to quickly point out the story from Darren's book that had the greatest impact on me, and it comes from the epilogue at the very end. It demonstrates that kindness to others is an essential ingredient to a truly extraordinary life, And like me, I'm certain you've heard on newscasts of the problem of homeless people on the streets of San Francisco. But, Darren, will you briefly tell us about your encounter with a homeless woman as you walked along Montgomery Street on your way from the train station to your office and the beautiful feedback that you gave her? I I was really impacted by that. Oh, thank you. You're the first person that's uh, that's um, acknowledged that it was really important to me. And I had really wanted to, and in the original draft, wanted to write a chapter on kindness. And I couldn't quite get the right words to come out um, that, that would do the subject justice. And so when I finished the draft, I realized, you know, I didn't have this chapter on kindness and it felt missing. And I was walking on my daily commute uh, in San Francisco uh, up Montgomery Street from the BART station. And as you said, you know, unfortunately, we do have this uh, problem with homelessness, a uh, pretty significant one. And I walked by uh, on the corner of a street. I just caught caught my eye, this woman and her dog. And the woman was putting on what appeared to be um, mascara with a little pocket mirror. And I walked by her, and just something in me just knew I had to turn around and go back and reach into my wallet and, and offer her, you know, uh, some money. And really, this was without thought. I looked into her eyes and the words you are already beautiful came out and and yeah and it was a really magical moment our eyes locked we connected kind of human being to human being and uh and then i kind of continued on my walk and it was the most magical walk I've, i've ever had and it just kind of gave me the inspiration to um write the epilogue and include what i think is so essential to, to leading an extraordinary life, which is the yeah, recognize the humanity and self-worth and others is the greatest gift that any of us can ever give. And thank you much, so much, Darren Gold, for this treasured example. I will think about it next time I encounter a homeless or downtrodden individual on the street. He or she is a fellow human being worthy of the same love and respect that I seek for myself. And it's so important that just builds not only the other person's self-feeling of worth, but your own, and you feel great when you do something like that. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much, Roy. I appreciate you having me on. Well, best of your success with your book and your leadership coaching, and thanks so much for being with us here today, Darren. My pleasure. Well, thanks to Darren Gold for his marvelous uh, presentation on Mastering Your Code. And to uh, close our program today, I'd like to very briefly cover eight things you should say no to during the upcoming holiday season. (laughs) After all, uh, no's, uh, these are no's that will help you uh, spend the holidays with less stress. And the ideas come from an article by Jennifer Mattson. 
from the website makeitgrateful.com. It was from an article included in the December 8, 2019 Des Moines Register, our local newspaper. And uh, Ms. Matson contends that saying no to someone else can be a way to say yes to yourself, and it is one of the most important tools for holiday mental health. And here are eight specific tips for letting go of things that might not benefit you. In fact, they might be very derogatory to your health uh, during this holiday season. Number one, say no to cooking. If you're not good at it and don't like it, uh, stop pretending to be Martha Stewart, says uh, Megan McDonough, founder of the Whole Being Institute. She says, I don't like to cook, and I do not want to spend the holidays cooking. And so I say yes to having everyone over to my house, house to celebrate. My husband cooks the turkey, and uh, everyone else uh, brings a side. Now, that sounds great, so long as your hubby is willing up to the cooking, if you're a woman. (laughs) McDonough says instead of cooking uh, the perfect meal, she focuses on saying yes to what she loves, good conversation with family, and singing holiday songs with everyone who uh, wants to join in. Well, it sounds great if you can get away with it. Uh, Here's number two, say no to old traditions. I know people often have the idea of how the holidays should be, and they go to great lengths to recreate what they experienced or didn't experience but feel like they should have in their childhood, says Dr. Alexandra Stockwell, M.D. And this is a setup for disappointment, as the reality is often less idyllic than imagined. She suggests you try thinking about the holidays in a new way, and mindfully say yes to the family in front of you. Make new traditions, take control of the hosting responsibilities, and focus on creating new memories rather than trying to resurrect old ones. And here's number three, and this is so important. Say no to feeling depleted. You know, between buying gifts, shopping, cooking, and cleaning, uh, the uh, weeks between Thanksgiving and New Year's, have many well-intentioned people depleted, says Dr. Paul Huckmeyer, a psychotherapist at Urban Recovery. He says limiting the number of things you can do, uh, you can help, uh, will help you be uh, more intentional rather than reactive. You should only agree to what you have the mental and physical capacity for. Boy, that sure is true. Uh, if you're getting overwhelmed, slow down, politely decline and uh, remind your loved ones that no may simply mean not now. If you're going through a lot, share that with family and friends. Number four, say no to cheating on your diet. And do you find it hard to stick to your diet and go to the gym with all that junk food and sweets around? You know, there's nothing, I don't need to tell you, but there's nothing more depleting than starting the new year in January with 10 pounds of excess weight to shed. Uh, the uh, Dr. Stockwell says uh, marking workout times in your calendar before the holidays is a good idea. And if Aunt Betty uh, insists that you eat her cookies, explain you are not eating gluten or dairy for health reasons, (laughs) people are more likely 
to leave you alone if they think you're uh, turning them down uh, what they've cooked for health or medical-related reasons. So you might use that as an excuse. Number five, say no to unlimited time with family. This sounds like kind of a weird one because that's the whole point of the holidays. But if you're spending time with family, it's difficult. How about bringing a board game or some other activity to create a new focus while everyone is hanging out? If a conversation turns to something you don't want to discuss, <laughs> that especially maybe politics, be kind but firm by saying, I would rather not talk about that. Boy, that uh, sure is a common refrain these days. I also set a non-negotiable departure time <laughs> to limit the hours you spend together. I know it's kind of hard to kick the family out but uh, or friends, but you should do that. It's important also to set aside time every day to do something that nourishes you. It could be something as simple as taking a walk, uh, calling a best friend, taking a bath. You don't do that with others. <laughs> Watching Netflix or TV or writing in your journal. And number six, say no to obligations that aren't a priority. It becomes easier to say no to obligations when you are clear on how you really want to spend your holidays, says life coach Crystalline Landolfi. Take time to envision what would, uh, what that would look and feel like. Is it ditching your holiday uh, work holiday party for dinner with dear friends? Once you are clear on your priorities, say no to invitations and tasks that don't align with them. And seven, say no to giving a quick answer. It can be downright uncomfortable to say no uh, to an invitation, so the best way to handle it is not to give an answer at the moment, but say you can uh, or respond by saying, I need to check my schedule. <laughs> and then after you check it, a couple of days later you can decline. In the end, uh, what you do isn't going to be as important as how you feel. Don't focus on how hard it is to say no. Instead, focus on how good it will feel to honor yourself and actually enjoy the holidays. And here's uh, perhaps the most important one of all. Number eight, say no to overspending. There's nothing more depleting than a huge uh, credit card balances showing up in January. And if giving gifts to everyone in the family is a financial burden, and I know for years I got gifts from my aunt that I wasn't even close to just because that was a family tradition and institute a new system this year, says Lindolfi. She says try a secret Santa where everyone picks only one person to buy for or opt to give gifts only to the kids in the family. And looking for a way to cut costs, consider making your own Christmas decorations and holiday cards and cut back on eating out during the holidays. The bottom line, well, I wish you and your family and your loved ones a most joyous holiday season, but never forget the holiday season should be viewed as a time to relax, refresh, and renew loving ties with family and friends and with your own spirit, and it never should be a period where you are stressed out, mentally tired, and uh, actually looking forward to January 2nd when it will all be over. 
And uh, now may of all of you have a stress-free, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year from all of us here at Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age. And bye for now. Happy Holidays. You've been listening to Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age, hosted by Roy Richards, an expert on midlife renewal and author of both A Midlife Challenge, Wake Up, and Wake Up, Captain and Crew, Restart Your Engines. You can learn more about Roy and his Middle Age Renewal Training System by visiting his website, middleagerenewal.com.